This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hi, I'm Indy Nidell, and this is another Great War podcast where we talk to cool people around the world that have stuff to do with the First World War, people from museums and universities and people that have written books and things like that. And today, I'm going to be talking to Aaron Pegram from the Australian War Memorial. Aaron, are you there? I am indeed, and uh, hello to you, and uh, thank you very much for having me along. No, this would be great. These are a lot of fun to do. Um, So why don't you first just jump right in and tell us, a bit about who you are and a bit about the memorial itself, and then we can get down to brass tacks. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, my name is Aaron Pegram, uh, and I'm a historian at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, Australia, and I've been working there for about the last 10 years. Um, I, I moved to Canberra um, in 2005 when I finished my my undergraduate degree. I I studied at Charles Sturt University in Wagga, in New South Wales, uh, I, I really had no sort of idea what I wanted to do or, or you know, what sort of uh, career I was going to pursue. So I figured that I'd, I'd go off to university and study history because, you know, I was kind of interested in that sort of thing. Um, I'd, I'd sort of bumbled my way through a, uh, a degree and was fortunate enough to, to complete an honours year uh, with first class honours, which... Um, yeah, which sort of put me on the right path. I, I moved to Canberra, figuring that uh, if I was going to find a job working in history, I'd, I'd, I'd do it in the national capital here in Canberra. So um, I moved here in 2005, and uh, I had an interest in, in military history. I'd uh, by that stage, uh, it started reading about a lot about the First World War. So I pretty much read everything that was uh, that was associated with Australia in the First World War. Um, much of it was focused on Gallipoli, but my interest was on the very significant contribution to the Australians made to the fighting on the Western Front. Um, and from there on, uh, yeah, that led to a couple of jobs around Canberra, uh, working in museums uh, around town. And then finally, I, I got a job at the Australian War Memorial, a very low paying one uh, as, as a uh, as a curator uh, working in our photograph section, but uh, by that stage I'd begun a, P- a part-time PhD, uh, and um, yeah, I just sort of grabbed the bulls by the horn and, and kind of went with it. So, um, fast forward ten years, uh, yeah, uh, I'm I'm now working in the military history section, uh, where I work on everything from exhibitions uh, through to uh, books and publications. I lead battlefield tours to the Western Front uh, once or twice every year. Yeah, I was going to say that's a long haul. So that's not like, that's not a weekly thing. I guess. Let me assure you, it is. Uh, I, I came back uh, two weeks ago after after ten days in France and Belgium. Uh, I was leading a, a, a tour with thirty five people for the centenary of the Australian action at the Battle of, well, at Polygon Wood um, in uh, for the centenary in September uh, this year. And uh, it's it's taken me quite a, quite a while to uh, to actually get back into the routine of things, 
Um, but um, I'm, I'm what you call a, a public historian. I'm, I'm, I, I, even though I have the academic credentials, uh, I, I, I don't teach. Um, I'm, I'm more often doing gallery tours in our, uh, in our the memorials um, exhibition space. Um, we're working on a, a publication called Wartime, which is the Australian War Memorials Quarterly magazine. And uh, and uh, a few other things as well that keep me entertained. I'm, at the moment, I'm, I'm putting the final touches on a on a book on the Australians and the Victoria Cross, um, and a biographies of each of the 100 Australians who had been awarded the Victoria Cross between uh, from the Boer War through to the war in Afghanistan. Well, that sounds very interesting. That sounds like a cool book. Yeah, indeed, it's been quite interesting. I mean, um, to look at. Particularly the First World War entries. I mean, um, there's this, there's about 60 of them awarded to Australians in the First World War. Uh, but to actually have a look at those historical events through historical sources, um, you know, Australians. It'd be fair to say that Australians know more about the First World War, courtesy of the rich archival legacy of the First World War, than than what we do about, say, current conflicts, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, yeah, every Australian soldier who enlisted in the Australian Imperial Force uh, has a service record that's been digitised and available through the National Archives of Australia. That's pretty close to 420,000 men, and each of those files uh, can vary between 20 pages to 250. So, um, yeah, a rich archival resource relating to the First World War. And who has access to those archives? Is it just you or people who are historians or does the public have access to things how does that work yeah no it's uh, all this material is, is available to members of the public i mean if uh, if you've got access to your smartphone and an internet connection you can access that material from anywhere in the world um so not just individual service records but also operational records relating to the australian forces uh, war diaries um that are just sort of administrative logs, um, daily entries that are kept by units uh, whilst they're uh, whilst they're deployed overseas, uh, engaged in the fighting, um, and uh, we're not just talking about those daily accounts. We're also talking about orders and after action reports and maps uh, and various other things. Um, notifications that come down through the chain of command from um, general headquarters, right from the top, from from Haig himself, all the way down to the to the lowly frontline soldiers. So. And um, I mean, um, the, the idea being that by digitizing these records, we're, we're preserving them um, and um, you know, we don't have to access the, the, the original document and handle it and risk further deterioration. But it also increases the, the ability of the, the, the public, not just the Australian public, the international public to, to access those records from, from the comfort of their home. Well, that's interesting because I didn't realize that that was all available. And, you know, I you know, write this show. So I'm definitely going to be looking around there. I had no idea. That's, uh, so I've learned something today and something I can actually take away and use for the remainder of the war. So thank you very much for that. It's funny, you and I have very similar historical background. I, you know, I studied history at university and did honors and stuff, and I had no intention of teaching either, although it's kind of what I do now. But that's that's a byproduct. I mean, mine is a public historian, much like you. Yeah, I, I kind of figured that if you enjoy enjoy you just keep on doing what you you do you enjoy doing and you know you find someone crazy enough to pay you you'll you'll in the end you'll just keep doing that for the rest of your life <laughs> and um that's that's the plan yeah that's that absolutely but um i i kind of enjoy uh the the public history sphere because you take what is what, is, what can be a very complex and very um, academic and, and dry subject matter and you you get to distill it down to its essential elements and 
whether it be writing, you know, the history of, you know, a certain campaign on a on a hundred and fifty uh, word object label for 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 an exhibition display, or, or or sort of distilling it down to its essential elements for a for the gallery talk or for a battlefield tour where your audience is your audience knows next to nothing about the First World War. So I, I think that's something that we perhaps have in common between uh, what I do at the Memorial and what you guys do with uh, with the YouTube series and with this podcast. Yeah, it's funny because you say, you know, getting the specific number of words for this, right, or, or the little bites. I have, for a weekly episode, I have about 1,600 words to tell what happened that week, but also why it happened and what it meant, you know. So that's fun. It's a challenge, you know, because some weeks everything happened and some weeks far fewer things happened. I mean, there's always something to write about, but, you know, it's a, that's the, probably my favorite part of the show is, is writing the show. That, that's right, and I mean, if that uh, if if that that's sixteen hundred words, then kind of you know piques the interest in your audience members, and they they then go off and and read a book about the First World War, then um, that's mission success. That's that's what public historians do. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. Now, the uh, War Memorial itself, how how old is it? I mean, what 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 about the physical building, the actual you know before we get down to more brass tacks? Um, could you tell us about the actual memorial? Sure. Well, the Australian War Memorial, the building itself has been there since 1941. And uh, it's, uh, it's in the, in the, just as Australia was in the midst of the Second World War, it was initially a memorial to the Australians who fought in the First World War. And during that conflict, I mean, the Australians who had fought and died overseas, um, I mean, their families couldn't simply, they had to literally travel to the other end of the world to to visit a grave site. So most Australians who had lost uh, sons, brothers, fathers, husbands during the First World War uh, didn't actually get to see a, a grave site. And uh, a large number of Australia's 60,000 war dead uh, remained missing. You know, such were the realities of fighting trench warfare, um, predominantly on the Western Front. So the War Memorial became something of a, a proxy uh, site of commemoration, and certainly we sort of really capped get an essence of that uh, during the opening in in uh, in 1941. But of course, by then Australia's in the group in the midst of the Second World War. They had uh, Australian troops were then engaged in the fighting in the Middle East, and uh, when the memorial opened, it was very obvious that it had to include uh, objects and stories relating to those from in subsequent conflicts. So when it was fun, was this was it was it a government funded thing, a privately funded thing, or a combination, or how did that work? Uh, that's a that's a good question. I don't know quite know the answer to it, but uh, the initial sort of thinking behind the Australian War Memorial uh, it it has its origins back in in 1917. Um, the Australian War Correspondent Charles Bean was was uh, was was then with the Australians on the Western Front, and was witness to much of the fighting. He'd, he'd, he'd been on Gallipoli in 19, 1915, was with the Australians all throughout the fighting on the Western Front uh, until 1918, and then returned to Gallipoli in 1919 to try and work out um, you know, what had happened. Uh, but he was also instrumental in creating what became known as the Australian War Records section. So Bean was uh, had this had the vision that perhaps that you know the Australian contribution to the fighting uh, would would be, have to be remembered in Australia somehow, and this this had this vision of this grand memorial that would both commemorate Australia's war dead and and tell uh, the generations of Australians uh, whose whose men had served in the First World War what they'd actually done. 
Um, so Bean sets about creating this, this section, which is tasked with creating all those rich archival records that we now have digitized and available on the website, um, as well as objects, uh, associated with the fighting. And, uh, these, these range from, uh, personal effects relating to Australian and, uh, and other forces, uh, as well as, you know, captured German guns um, and large technology items. I think uh, uh, the A7V Mephisto uh, had been captured with and brought back to the Australia with the intention of it returning to the Australian, going to the Australian War Memorial. But I, but I know your views on, on Mephisto and the Australian connection. I don't think uh, any reference to A7Vs either on the uh, the podcast or on your Instagram feed can go past without mention of the Australian contribution in capturing. No, and, and we're going to see one, actually, in the German Tank Museum next month. They've rebuilt one, but it's not a real one. Well, it's a real one, but it's not a real one. They've rebuilt one. So. Yeah. No, Mephisto uh, it was, uh, was loaned to the memorial from the Queensland Museum just recently, and uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to actually climb inside and actually have a good look around inside. So uh, as, uh, from my, my lasting glory, I've been inside an A7V. Now we were we were in the tech museum uh, Bovington over the summer, and I got to go inside like a, a Mark IV and stuff, and it's I, it was a that's a an amazing experience. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to the the tech museum in Bovington? No, not not to Bovington. Um, uh, I, I do want to though. Um, yeah, I, it's it's one of the things that I, I definitely want to do next time I come to the UK. It's pretty spectacular, actually. I mean, you think. It doesn't. I didn't think it was going to be as big as it actually was. You think, oh, tank museum, and then it's a tank museum. I mean, three hundred tanks takes up a lot of space, and it's uh, it's impressive. I'm really looking forward to the A7V thing because the A7V they have at the tank museum is it's just a, it's it's not even a a full full metal replica, uh, but it's 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 just in storage there. Anyway, back to the memorial and stuff. I'm sure we could sidetrack about the war for the next ten hours. You know how how big is the is the war memorial? Because some you know I haven't been there and I I only know it from the website, so I don't really have a physical thing. I mean, is it a is it is this a small thing or is it a big thing with hundreds of people that work there or a couple of dozen or, or you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, it's it's actually quite a uh, quite a large museum. Um, I, the footprint of which I, I could I couldn't recite to you off the top of my head, but um, uh, every day, well, we we get about a million visitors to the museum uh, or to the memorial every year. Uh, and it's um it's rated as the number one tourist attraction in Australia and. Uh, I believe it's uh, within the top top fifteen in the world. I think, but um, it's part as part of the Australian school curriculum. We have uh, we have school school children visit the memorial and go through our galleries. But um, what makes the Australian War Memorial unique and say distinct from the Imperial War Museum is that we we have three main core purposes. Yes, we're a museum and we tell the story of Australian military history through our galleries from. Uh, from the colonial period all the way through to uh, the current conflicts, Iraq and Afghanistan. And in fact, tonight there is a, uh, a temporary exhibition opening on Australian special forces during those recent conflicts. Um, we're an archive and a centre of learning. So school children will come and learn about the Australian military history uh, and uh, members of the public are more than welcome to come and view uh, original documents, operational records, letters, diaries, uh, books, uh, by soldiers who had fought uh, during that period. But of, of chief importance in binding all that, we're a memorial to the 106,000 Australians who have died 
on active service and in peacekeeping operations uh, since the Boer War. Uh, and as I mentioned, 60,000 of them uh, from the First World War. And in the commemorative space uh, are listed, uh, are their names are, are, are on bronze cloisters in the memorial, uh, flanking uh, the, the main commemorative area, which lead up to the tomb of the unknown Australian soldier, uh, who in 1993 was brought back from uh, Villers Bretonneux in, uh, in France, uh, where he was killed uh, fighting against German forces in April 1918. So uh, we are quite a large institution um, physically, uh, but we, we, only, we have a staff of about 280 people, uh, predominantly uh, those who work within, the, within the, 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 the War Memorial Gallery space itself. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm one of uh, about six historians who, who work at the Australian War Memorial. So we seem to do a, a lot uh, with a little, <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a special place nonetheless. Now, are, are you still, as, as you said, like, you know, a decade ago, you were interested in war history and interested in World War I history. Is it still a bug for you? Does it still grab you to read about the First World War and learn about the First World War? Absolutely. I mean, every day, you cannot predict uh, what's going to happen at every day. You, you know, when you work in a museum, you generally tend to think, oh, yeah, you know, you, that guy's, you know, dry and dusty and, you know, pretty boring. But, um, uh, you know, we get to work on some really cool stuff that surprisingly comes up unexpectedly. Um, I mean, I, I, I find I'm absolutely fascinated with the material I find in the operational war diaries from the First World War. Uh, to see, uh, you know, the enthusiasm of a, of a unit as it moves up the front line, as the guys, uh, you know, they, you know, they're offered leave to the UK uh, from from the fighting on the Western Front, but they they turn it down, knowing that their unit's going to be in action the next day, um, and then that unit will will ultimately take heavy casualties in the in the engagement that follows, or. Well, something, something so benign, such as uh, disciplinary matters, which are referred to in the documents themselves, I, I find all that fascinating. But um, back to the, the whole notion of public history, I mean, within the, the context of my with the battlefield tours that I lead, I mean, um, members of the public, you know, they pay uh, a lot of money to go to the other side of the world to have a look, of, look to, to study a patch of ground in, in France or Belgium, because that's exceptionally meaningful for them. That's where a father... A grandfather had fought during the First World War, or a relative had died. Um, and so I take great pleasure in sort of being able to translate family stories or, or, or sort of bring to light uh, something that's known within that family history and relate it to the First World War. Um, I mentioned I just got back from the Western Front uh, with, a, with a group of 35 people for the centenary of the Battle of Polygon Wood. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had, I had people on that tour whose fathers fought in the First World War and had told them stories about what the fighting was like. And it was, it was amazing to actually be standing, say, on the Menon Road uh, and, and, and uh, leading up to the Ford area and, and, and point out this is where he was, this is what he was doing. And that story that he had told you of the shell fire of the ambulance wagons being, being led, back to, led back to Ypres and German shells falling all around them, that happened right here. Um, it's, uh, yeah, quite a, quite a moving and touching experience. You know, next year we're tentatively planning on doing some filming in Flanders and stuff. It'd be interesting if we could time it. So we were there the same time as you actually, so we could get you on camera. Cause that'd be cool. So let's say, we'll say, yeah. we'll, we'll talk about that over the next six months or so, but that's just an idea that now, now that we've been cool. going on the road, if we're both in the neighborhood, then we should definitely, you know, do a. Absolutely. Yeah.
Well, of course, I, would be, I wouldn't be doing my job if I wasn't advocating for you guys to come out to Australia. I'd like to. Um, I'd also, I'd really like to see, um, I'd like to go down to that neck of the woods. I want to go to Guam to see the uh, stuff there. We, you know, we did a, a special episode about Guam during the First World War. And the reason we were inspired to do it was actually the Guam Tourist Board got hold of us and said, you know, Guam, a lot of stuff happened in Guam on Guam the First World War, which I was unaware of, and I'm, you know, supposed to be a First World War scholar. And uh, but it was it's, it's very interesting. So if we're going to go to Guam, we got to go to Australia, of course. You know, so that'd be great. Well, uh, absolutely, you get to see how the First World War has a long-lasting impact in Australian society because uh, you, you know all the small country towns that are. Um, that are you know all throughout the, all throughout Australia, all these country towns have a memorial to the men from that local community who who enlisted, uh, fought, and died in the First World War. Um, I mean, that, I think that would be an interesting perspective. But but also, uh, Australian forces. I mean, when we generally think of the Australians and the Anzacs and the First World War, we generally think of Gallipoli. Um, but the first the first action fought by Australian forces in the First World War is in German New Guinea uh, in in September 1914. Um, that's uh, New Guinea is a is a German colony directly to Australia's north, and uh, the first uh, the first uh, campaign uh, conducted by Australian forces is against the German uh, naval reservists holding the uh, the wireless station and uh, in the in the southwest Pacific. Um, and in September 1914, uh, the Australian forces, we didn't actually have an army we could send overseas, so we sort of cobbled together this, uh, this, this, this military force that's referred to as the Australian Naval and Military Expeditionary Force. It's quite a mouthful. And um, mainly naval reservists and, uh, and, and militiamen who had signed on exclusively for this specific campaign. And um, they, they land up uh, off Rabaul. And uh, that's that's where the first action involving Australians in the First World War takes place. There's a there's a small skirmish between Australian um, uh, naval reservists and uh, German uh, German reservists and and Melanesia at a place called Bitterpaka. And what the what the Australians are trying to do is knock out a wireless station that's uh, that's, a, that's about seven kilometres inland. And that wireless station is communicating to the German East Asia Pacific Squadron, which is floating about in, a, in the Pacific waters around Australia, just as Australia is trying to raise uh, enough troops to send overseas to the war in Europe. But they get, sort of get waylaid and get sent to, to Egypt instead. So, that, I mean, that's kind of interesting. I mean, most Australians probably don't even know that, uh, let alone uh, let alone some of your listeners. Uh, it's funny to talk about timing. Uh, and I wasn't certain if it was August or September, but in September we actually filmed a special episode about just the South Pacific War about exactly what you just talked about. It's going to come out in like three or four weeks, he says. It's, well, you know, brilliant minds think alike. Um, here's a question that I don't know the answer to, and I'm sure you do. And stuff. Um, when, when the Australians went to war, did they also, like they had in Britain, have PALS battalions at first? The, the short answer is no, they didn't. Um, what happens is uh, at the outset of the First World War, the Australian government uh, you know, agrees to send an initial contingent of 20,000 troops uh, to, to serve at Britain's behest. Okay? And we don't have an army that can serve overseas. Uh, Australia federated in 1901, and at that moment we had a, a small permanent army, uh, but it's for home defence. And uh, we have a citizens' military force, uh, sort of reservists, uh, all throughout the country, 
but they too were for home defence only. So the Australians sort of set about, uh, the Australian government then forms what's referred to as the Australian Imperial Force, um, which is, uh, you know, ostensibly part of the British forces, but uh, with a distinctly Australian flavour. Um, and it's 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 raised all throughout from all throughout Australia. Um, we don't actually have that sort of PALS battalion uh, makeup within the AIF, but there are certain uh, units, uh, brigades, and formations, other formations that are that have a distinctly um, state-based uh, recruiting. I mean, um, the Tenth Battalion, for example, was was raised in Western Australia. Uh, you know, most of the first brigade was raised in New South Wales from the suburbs of Sydney. Um, I think that was more due to the realities of the recruiting depots, the establishment of the recruiting depots in Australia. I mean, um, not not everybody or not all of the, the, the volunteers that it's that uh, that enlisted for the AIF went to the same recruiting depot. I mean, there were training camps uh, in Perth, in uh, in Western Australia, on the other side of, of, of Australia, um, you know, Brisbane in Queensland. Uh, there are several depots in, in, in Sydney. And um, once re- recruiting for the AIF peaks in, in mid-1915, uh, during the Gallipoli campaign, I mean, all the, the, the Australian casualties that are suffered on, on Gallipoli does, does, does very little to, to sort of deter recruiting. In fact, it stimulates it. Um, these training camps get overloaded, particularly in New South Wales. And then you have a whole bunch of regional areas that start up recruiting or training camps. So then you do have, um, quite by, quite by accident, um, you have these, these little sort of, um, uh, short period where, uh, what they refer to as the snowball marches. These are, uh, a series of just these are patriotic marches that start in a small rural country town in the middle of nowhere in Australia, and a group of guys who just decide they want to enlist together. Um, they they start walking to the nearest recruiting depot, and they the size of the group snowballs as it as it goes along. There's a number of these uh, throughout Australia. They're highly celebrated at the time and, and reported. And uh, the guys who enlist, you know, these guys are sort of revered as, as or celebrated as local heroes, um, which inadvertently puts a lot of pressure on men within the community who hadn't enlisted. Um, uh, and then so when these guys go through training and they actually get to a battalion, um, you do actually have that PALS battalion makeup, which I think is kind of interesting. I mean, um, the 55th Battalion, for example, which, which which goes into action at Polygon Wood in September 1917, is predominantly made up of men from the Snowy River area in uh, in southern New South Wales. So just by just by fluke, you know, that we do actually have some of that happening within the AIA. But not intentionally. It's very interesting. Now that we've talked about the men, how about the men that might have been left behind? Why don't we talk about what you wrote about, about the actual prisoners themselves? So as I mentioned, I started my PhD about 10 years ago. And uh, because I work a full-time job, I uh, you know started and stopped and started and stopped. And I've recently submitted. So, you know, pleased to say that that's in. But uh, I, was, I was kind of struck by... In Australia, um, when we, we, we think about prisoners of war, it's predominantly a narrative associated with the Second World War. Um, more than 20, uh, about 26,000 Australians were captured in the Second World War, most of whom in the Pacific by the Japanese. And those guys had a particularly horrible experience, um, so much so that when Australians generally tend to think about captivity, it's associated with those horrible, nasty experiences of, of suffering uh, at the hands of the Japanese. Um, 
I was starting to, to, to look at, uh, you know, captivity in the First World War because you didn't really hear too much about it. And uh, there are about 4,000 Australians who were captured during the First World War, uh, around 200 by the, by the Ottomans uh, in the Dardanelles, in Mesopotamia and in the campaign in Sinai and Palestine. And a lot had been written about them, uh, mainly because of a similarity between their experiences and those of the Australian prisons of the Japanese in the conflict that followed. But there was next to nothing on the 3,848 Australians who were captured by the Germans on the Western Front. And this got me thinking, well, you know, what's the, what's the difference? I mean, <laughs> that's, that's clearly the, the larger dominant group. Um, very surprised to find that uh, nearly all of them, um, all but uh, all but uh, around 320 of them, survived the First World War and returned home. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting, an interesting little sort of peak. I mean, these Australians who had been captured in the, the most sort of violent uh, sort of turmoil of, of, uh, of, of combat on the Western Front, um, they get captured by German forces um, and they get they spend the rest of the war in Germany and nearly all of them survive. I think that's that's actually quite remarkable. Um, and then when I broke down the the statistics of, of you know, when I did a, a, um, a mortality study, I, I found that virtually all of these guys who die in German captivity do so from the wounds where they receive in action. So it on the surface, it, it kind of looked like captivity may have actually spared these men from uh, death or wounding uh, in this in the fighting on the Western Front. So yeah, so I said about looking at how and why, looking at survival uh, in in German captivity on, in during the First World War. Uh, and so uh, yeah, I was I started poking around in the archives and and found this exceptionally rich uh, collection of statements by returned prisoners of war, when Australians coming back from Germany and from the Ottoman Empire uh, were, were, were repatriated back to back to England or back to Egypt, um, they had to sit down and sort of give a formal statement on how they were captured and uh, how they were treated by, by, their, by their captors. And um, of the 3,848 Australians captured on the Western Front, um, close to 3,000 of them gave written statements on their on the nature of their experiences so needless to say i was actually quite surprised to find these these documents which uh it was quite uh important to my study and in all reality it was about 50 to 75 meters away from where from my from my desk at work so i was actually quite fortunate <laughs> fortunate in that um but I, I wanted to not just look at the experiences of prisoners because I also wanted to sort of bring in a German narrative as well. Um, there had been some studies by historians in in, uh, in Europe on the, the German treatment of allied prisoners during the First World War. Um, but I, I was really interested in, in sort of what sort of benefits uh, prisoners were to the German army and particularly looking at the intelligence value of, of, of Australians captured by the, the Germans on the Western Front. I mean, one of the reasons why armies take prisoners is, is, is for intelligence gathering. And it, it's certainly prisoners of war, an important source of news in the fighting on the Western Front. So uh, I, yeah, so what I did was identified a whole series of German records uh, in the Kriegsarchiv in Munich, uh, and then also in the the Hauptstadt Archive in uh, in Stuttgart, uh, and I found uh, intelligence reports based on the interrogation of Australian prisoners. 
Um, so looking at captivity from the German perspective and looking at what the Germans learned from the capture of Australian prisoners. What I, what I found was, was quite startling. Um, the Australians, as with the British, the rest of the British Army at that time, didn't have any counterintelligence training, which meant that, um, that men uh, in, who were likely to go into action weren't actually told or trained on what was expected of them if they had the misfortune of falling into enemy hands. So in the First World War, it was not an officer's duty to try and escape. Um, and you were to say the only sort of directions was were to the, with that you were to only give your name and rank, although that message wasn't particularly pressed home until after the Somme campaign. So what I found was in the German records is that when Australians were captured by German forces, they sang like canaries. Um, they, they talked about the, the movements of the Australian forces since their arrival on the Western Front, they talked about the strength and disposition of the Australian defences in, in, a, in a particular sector. Uh, yeah, they talked about the outcome of the two conscription, conscription referenda uh, held in Australia. They, they complained about their conditions. They complained about their officers. Um, and all this kind of fed into this huge, big intelligence gathering machine um, you know, behind German lines. And the Germans were able to build up what they referred to as mood pictures of um, what was happening behind British lines. But, of course, the most valuable information the Germans were able to acquire from them were, were nonverbal, uh, nonverbal. I mean, the Australians wore on their uniform regimental titles, colour patches, um, which all sort of indicated um, different movements of British units up and down the length of the Western Front. And so what the Germans were monitoring was where certain divisions were at any given time so they can then prepare for a, a likely offensive and um, that's that's usually what happened but um, there's a couple of cases I actually came across two two Australian soldiers who willingly deserted to the Germans uh, one of whom was a German Australian and he just uh, he had no problems with going to Gallipoli and uh, shooting at his shooting at the Ottomans but uh, had took, took quite an issue to being sent to France where he was shooting at his uh, his German cousins um, and, um, things were not particularly well for him. Uh, I think he, he was, uh, he was a bit of a, an outcast from within his platoon. He had an injury which kept on nagging at him and he, in his repeated protests and attempts at trying to get a base job were, 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 uh, constantly rejected. So, uh, he, during, uh, during a century, when he was century one night, uh, near the town or during the, um, while the Australians were in the relatively quiet sector around Amontier, he just simply left his post and, and toddled off over to the Germans. He told them he, uh, he, he actually was quite candid in, uh, in his information and, and, and in sort of disclosing information to the, uh, the, the Bavarians opposite. And um, I don't know whether or not he was trying to curry favour with them, but he was telling them all about the strength and disposition of the Australian forces, the location of gun and battery lines, and he also warned them that a major offensive was coming in the following weeks, and uh, that, of course, in the in the following months, sorry, uh, of course, was the uh, the third battle of Ypres. Now, now, but this guy, um, I mean, what happened to him once he was taken by the Germans? I mean, did he end up in a POW camp, or did he did? I mean, what happened? Okay, and then you got him back after the war. Australia got him back, so. Was he? Did he serve a sentence as a traitor, or how did that? What happened to? Yeah. What's What's interesting is um, there there are desert, there is desertion within 
uh, the the Australian and, and British forces desertion to the enemy. I mean, desertion uh, behind your own lines is a, is a wholly different kettle of fish. But then desertion in the face of yeah, the enemy. Correct. Right? Yeah, correct. But um, sure. uh, Australians are held accountable under British military law during the First World War, uh, and uh, desertion to the enemy is a capital sentence. I mean, that's that's a that's a punishment faced with you if you're caught and you you found guilty of it. You you face a firing squad. Uh, and but what happens with the Australians? They're, they're a unique case. There is a, a certain clause in the Australian Defence Act which says that Australian troops cannot be executed without the without the approval of the Australian Governor General. That is the the King's man in in Australia. And uh, as a result of that, there are no Australians formally executed under British military law during the First World War. Um, what happens to this guy? He he heads off over the German lines. He carries favour with them by giving them information. The German intelligence officers are very wary of what he is saying. They're actually quite sceptical that perhaps the British were trying to to feed or feed misinformation to disrupt German plans. And then so uh, his his statements, uh, which make for some pretty bold reading, um, uh, are swiftly ignored. He enters a prisoner of war prisoner of war camp where he's ostensibly ostracised by the by the other prisoner of war uh, prisoners of war. Um, yeah, and he has a he has a quite a difficult time in captivity. Um, he survives the war, returns back to Britain where uh, he faces uh, yes he, he has to uh, account for his crime. There had been a court of inquiry in the meantime, which had determined that he had indeed deserted to the Germans. He's arrested. He spends some time in uh, uh, held at Warwick Square, the big the, uh, military prison in London. Uh, but um, he, he desertion to the enemies is, is one of four crimes Australian troops could be executed for under British military law. Um, and uh, his sentence is commuted. He has develops what's referred to on his service record as mental trouble. Uh, and then I don't know whether or not it's because the war is, has has reached its end, but. He's put on a troop ship home, sent home to Australia, discharged and not given any sort of repatriation benefits uh, following the First World War. So he kind of fades into obscurity thereafter. Yeah, I guess he wouldn't advertise his actions, you know, once back in Australia after the war. No, I, I, I traced him through Ancestry and I, I found that uh, through census records he, he lived um, a fairly solitary life uh, for the remainder of his of his of his years, he he lived at Perth in Western Australia, and uh, I think it, he was uh, a gardener up until about the the mid nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties, and then he kind of drops off the away. You know, he he just fades from the historical records. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's a sad story. I mean, he's a man who's just. Uh, I mean, his bottle was full, and you know, he did what uh, he thought was the best uh, best thing to him. Uh, available to him, uh, it may not have been the the, the the right thing when we have a look at it, the benefit of hindsight. But of course, uh, yeah, it's, it sort of alters uh, the course of his life and affects um, affects him through his the rest of his the rest of his years. Can you talk a little bit about what the conditions were like uh, for the POWs, particularly when once you had like the turnip winter when half of Germany was starving and stuff? How that affected things? Uh, so I think it's it's probably just to give an overview. I mean. Um, 
the captivity in the First World War sort of it 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 laid out these unprecedented challenges among the belligerents between France, Britain, and Germany. They they'd never experienced captivity on this scale before, and in many respects, captivity in the First World War uh, then goes on to determine how prisoners of war are then treated in the Second World War. Um, Germany had, had largely prepared for a, a very short war of mobility. Uh, much of its domestic wartime economy, or its wartime economy, was was geared towards production of war material uh, and fighting a war on on a single front, not one on multiple fronts. Um, and that really sort of comes at the expense of the domestic situation at home as well. I mean, uh, so much, you know, this is so much emphasis on, on, uh, the military and the conducting of, of, of these campaigns, you know, the needs of the civilians is, you know, it's sort of dropped by the wayside. Um, what happens is, is that Germany is, is successful initially in the fighting in 1914. Um, and, and by October 1914, Germany has 185,000 Allied prisoners in its care. Um, the, all, these, all these French, Russian, British prisoners are flooding into Germany where they're held into these sort of um, hastily erected, uh, poorly equipped and underprepared prisoner of war camps, which completely flooded with prisoners. Um, um, they have little food. Uh, the barracks are, 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 are you know, disease-ridden and filthy. And, of course, this ultimately leads to an outbreak of typhus. Russians um, fighting in the Eastern Front who had, uh, you know, had brought with them uh, typhus, uh, which, which uh, ravished the, the British and the French. Um, and, and, and conditions in Germany during that first winter of 1914-1915 are, are, are pretty horrible. But things had, had changed significantly before the first uh, Australians are captured on the Western Front and entered Germany. Uh, what had happened was the German prison system uh, underwent uh, a major restoration. I mean, this this sort of activity of, of prisoners dying from malnutrition and disease was not a good thing, and it, in fact, it violated the terms of the 1907 Hague Convention. Um, so Germany goes about and then tries to to, to re-engineer the prisoner of war system. Uh, there's about 175 prison camps that are ultimately established throughout Germany, uh, both for distinctly for officers and then also for other ranks in accord with the with the Hague Convention. Um, you know, there's still thousands of prisoners flooding into Germany, uh, 1.6 million by August 1916. Um, by then, the Royal Navy had started blockading the German ports and preventing vital foodstuffs and uh, fertilizers from from entering Germany. Uh, so, so Germany itself is 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 not is charged not only just with uh, feeding and sustaining its own people, but also these millions of prisoners of war. Um, so, one of the ways the Germans look at solving this this issue was to take a look at that large, very large body of other ranks prisoners who, uh, you know, under military law could be worked uh, and send them out into the far-flung regions of Germany with sentries to, to work and sustain the domestic economy. So you have millions of prisoners uh, engaged in agriculture, in the production of steel, uh, in, in mines, all throughout Germany, uh, while the officers, uh, you know, they're, they're protected under the under international law and don't have to work. And in fact, the Germans pay them uh, their, their equivalent uh, equivalent uh, pay within the German within the German forces. 
on, on, on top of all this, uh, you know, the food situation in Germany then, then becomes quite dire, as you mentioned, the, 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 the turnip winter uh, of 1915, 1916. But one of the ways in which Germany can sort of defray the cost of, uh, of feeding these millions of prisoners is, is allowing them uh, relief by international aid agencies such as the Red Cross. Um, so uh, the Russians didn't, as far as I'm aware, the Russians didn't uh, weren't, weren't receiving food and uh, welfare from 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 home. Nor nor did the Italians. I think in the Italians' case, uh, I mean um, that may have actually served as an incentive for for men to to be willingly giving themselves up. Also, the government government at the time had thought. I think Russia was under the impression that um, by sending food and clothing to prisoners of war in, in Germany may be actually assisting Germany uh, materially. But for the British and the French, uh, including the Australians, uh, they received regular consignments of food and clothing from their respective interna- or respective uh, national uh, Red, Cross, uh, Red Cross agencies. And the Australians who, who arrive in Germany, uh, probably about... Uh, about three months after capture, they start receiving Red Cross food parcels. Um, and so while the Germans outside or beyond the wire uh, are working, you know, they, they slowly begin to starve and uh, undergo these critical food shortages um, throughout the course of the war, which gets worse and worse as the war progresses. Um, Australian prisoners in contact with the Red Cross uh, are receiving tinned meat. They're receiving, uh, you know, teas, uh, boiled chicken. There, uh, I mean, they're receiving cigarettes. Uh, you know, they receive soap, um, and so I mean, um, it'd be fair to say that some some of the Australians who who uh, who endure captivity in Germany become some of the, the best fed people in the country, and that goes way in sustaining them throughout uh, throughout captivity. And some of the interesting stuff that I've come across in my thesis um, is that uh, the other ranks working out in the countryside were also receiving their Red Cross food parcels and they're able to exchange the contents uh, from their food Red Cross food parcels for, for, for commodities, whether it be for escape equipment, you know, wire cutters or a compass, uh, or you know, it could be just for, for additional firewood for, you know, for, for on, a, on a cold night. But there are, there are men who, uh, who, are, who, who, who are receiving parcels who uh, are, are actually um, you, you have German women and and, uh, and and women from from the Balkan states who are working in Germany offering their bodies in exchange for soap. Uh, I mean, such are the the, the dire economical uh, situation in Germany. So yeah. But what would the uh, what would the say the guards and I guess the locals think? You know, if you're starving or if you're I mean, the guards obviously have better food than maybe the locals during the turnip winter. But would there be a lot of resentment or would there be hatred or would it be how can I get my hands on that? Or, I mean, what, how, how was the reactions to these guys getting, you know, food and care packages? I, I think, um, uh, well, in, in, despite Germany's dire economic situation, I think it's, it's actually uh, quite remarkable that the Red Cross food parcels in the main, made it to their intended recipients. Um, I, there's a there's a whole sort of principle of reciprocity going on in Germany at the time because if uh, parcels don't end up uh, arriving with prisoners, the prisoners then start complaining to the Red Cross and then their own home government, who in turn have tens of thousands of German prisoners. So there is there is what's referred to as this principle of reciprocity. So the fear of 
German prisoners being denied food and mail, uh, you know, ultimately affects the German treatment of allied prisoners. But uh, as far as as far as guards and their opinions go, I mean, uh, guards are a part of this black market trade and racketeering. I mean, guards are, are willingly, uh, you know, offering prisoners escape equipment for in exchange for cigarettes or or tinned meat to feed families at home. In fact, there's a, a famous account of an Australian uh, orderly uh, at the at the the officers camp at Holzminden. Uh, he is a photographer in civilian life, and he procures enough material, enough photographic equipment on the black market at Holzminden through the guards that he's able to make 300 copies of a map of Germany to use in the mass escape attempt at Holzminden in, in, in July 1918. 300 copies. Yeah, it is amazing. So, I mean, you know, prisoners of war, yeah, they may be living behind barbed wire, but they actually have quite a lot of agency to shape the conditions that surround them. Well, this is really fascinating, and um, you've written a book about this, yes? And when will that be coming out? Well, I've, uh, I've written uh, a PhD thesis on, on, uh, on Australian prisoners uh, captured on the Western Front, which uh, once I hear back from my examiners, uh, I'll be able to uh, work, work, on their, work on their comments, and uh, hopefully once my PhD passes, I'll be, then be able to turn my attention to writing a book. So um, what I'm hoping to do is have a book out uh, at least late 2018, uh, which I think is a fitting time to, to, to look at the experiences of prisoners of war because they do fall out. Spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> they all lived happily ever after. Or did they? <laughs> that's that's, 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 that, that's got to be my last line of the show. And they all lived happily ever after. Pretty much. That's exactly oh. right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. When is, when is the thing, when is the book about the VC recipients coming out? Yeah. Okay. So uh, I mentioned earlier that I'm work- currently working on a, a book on the 100 Australians who were awarded the Victoria Cross between the Boer War and Afghanistan. And uh, that goes off to the publisher on the 1st of November. And with any, I'm hoping, uh, with any luck, it'll be out in August 2018. So uh, stay tuned for that one. Yeah. And everybody, since you have an interesting name, Aaron Pegram is a is a very interesting name. So everybody will be able to remember it and they'll be able to look it up next August, the next September, to find the book and so they can learn more about all of the individual uh, Australian VC winners, right? Correct. That's right. Okay. Well, uh, Aaron, it was great having you today. That was fascinating. This is going to be a really, really good episode. Uh, and particularly that I, I, I always like ones when I actually learn stuff that I didn't know and stuff that can... I can use in the show. Um, oh, cool. And I'm definitely going to check out the digitized stuff that yeah, uh, we well, were talking about. Yeah, well, if you need a hand or if even if you need, like, uh, some, some good material for the show, you know, I've, I've got some cherished favorites or, you know, just fling me a line. I'm more than happy to help you guys out. All right. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. And uh, Flo, thank you for sitting here and silently nodding your head and saying, oh, that's interesting. And this will come out soon, so everybody in the world can listen to this. And hopefully, we will see you uh, next year, assuming we're on the Western Front at the same time, right? 
Oh, uh, absolutely. I'm I'm going to be in France and Belgium in uh, in July uh, next year in 2018, and I'll be there for about a month. Uh, so I'm hoping that perhaps that may cross over with you guys because I'm a big fan of the YouTube channel. Uh, I really enjoyed your uh, your inaugural YouTube or the um, podcast. Um, yeah, it'd be really good to meet you guys in person and uh, and and share history with you. Well, Flo just gave the high sign, so apparently July is perfect for us. So he's in charge of logistics. Let's um, all let's right. make it happen. Well, and, and say goodbye to all your fans out there in, in podcast land. See you later, guys. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>